views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. I guess you're not going to tell me what I'm supposed to draw. That would be too easy, wouldn't it? It's up to you. Draw whatever feels right. I've never been able to draw. My sister was the artist in the family. And you were the scientist. It's true. When other children were outside playing games, I was doing mathematics problems. Mathematics? I can see why you enjoyed it. Solve a problem, get an answer. The answer's either right or wrong. It's very absolute. I've always found that satisfying. I'm sure you did. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, March 15, 2012. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we'll be with you from now until noon. Oh, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be and 519-661-3600 is the number you can always call to reach us to discuss today, among other things, mathematics, science, global warming, Margaret Thatcher, puzzles and games, believe it or not, all in one show. And we have a couple of remarkable guests to share these topics with. Robert, do you care to do the honors? Well, certainly, Bob. Joined in the studio today with us is Professor Christopher Essex and Lord Christopher Monkton. Now, Professor Essex, of course, has been a frequent guest on the show. Um, he's a professor and associate chair of the Department of Applied Mathematics at here at UWO, former director, program in theoretical physics here again at UWO, former NSERC postdoc at the Canadian Climate Center's Numerical Modeling Division, and author of, and this is what makes him rather famous <laughs> outside of academe and inside, is Taken by Storm, The Trouble Science, Policy and Politics of Global Warming. And with Professor Essex, we have uh, Lord Christopher Monckton, third Viscount of Brenchley. Actually, this is going to be a long list here. Let me know oh, if I don't yeah. cover Summarize. everything. <laughs> third Viscount of Brenchley, special advisor to Margaret Thatcher from 82 to 86, graduate of Cambridge's Churchill College and Cardiff University, entrepreneur, journalist, consultant, orator, classical architect, autodidactic mathematician, an inventor. Did I cover all the bases, or at least most of them, Lord Moncton? A few of them. Okay. <laughs> now, Lord Moncton, of course, is in London as part of a six-week speaking tour of North America. He'll be giving the 2012 Nirenberg Lecture at, on Monday here at March 19th at 7.30 p.m. in Conran Hall University College, Room 224. His lecture is entitled The Courtier's Conundrum, How Can the Inexpert in in Advisor Advise Expertly? Do I have that right? Welcome to you both. Nice to be here. Likewise. Yes, at least since both our guests are notorious as deniers of global warming, I thought we'd kick off the show with that issue, perhaps. It seems to be almost symbolic that you should appear today on our show just right here in London, Ontario, on what might be the warmest day on record for this day. I mean, it is, after all, still winter, isn't it, Robert? It's it supposed is to be. Winter, yeah. And we now, normally have snow on the ground, and here it is like summer. Now, Christopher, and didn't I tell you that would be the first <laughs> thing they would ask? It's the place to start. <laughs> and it's been the mildest winter in yeah. southern Ontario mm -hmm. that we've ever had. 
had. I've never really seen one like this. Mm -hmm. So are we in trouble or should we be celebrating our good fortune? Well, the first thing is there are some countries in the world where if the world were to warm up, warm up as much as the usual suspects think, they would get an advantage. Scotland, where I come from, is one of them, and Canada, where you come from, and where we're speaking from today to people listening all over the world, is another. And so if global warming were as real a problem as the usual suspects say, if we were going to see something like, say, three Celsius of warming over the 21st century, this would be a splendid blessing for Canada so don't knock it. And all the so-called extreme consequences of such warming, were it to occur, have been rather overblown. Let me test your knowledge here, you two presenters. Uh oh now we're in trouble, right? At what rate, expressed as a rate per century, has sea level been rising over most of the last decade? 1.3 inches. Very good. Give this man a cigar. Three <laughs> centimetres, if you happen to be Canadian. That's right. Three centimetres per century. Now, is this a problem? Answer, no, of course it isn't. How much has temperature risen over the last 12 or 14 years? Not enough for around here. Exactly. It hasn't risen at all. It's not 1.3 inches. I know so, that. <laughs> very good. Yes, You're learning fast. Um, you know, you, you could become a climatologist yet. Or so the point is that there really isn't very much of a problem with the climate. It isn't happening. I mean, the, the rate at which the world has been warming in the generation since the first report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change in 1990 is really only... It's very small. And it's, in fact, well below the lowest estimate made by the IPCC in 1990. Their forecast has therefore proven, uh, to use the mathematical word, unskillful. It has not come true. None of the disastrous forecasts they made is coming true. It isn't happening. Now, there are very good reasons why it shouldn't happen, but it isn't happening. A week or so ago you gave a lecture at, um, in Schenectady. Yes. And uh, I watched that online last night, mm. and you mentioned fraud. Yes, I did indeed. Is there fraud going on with the United Nations IPCC or some of the scientists, and what's going to be done about it? There are a few specific things that have happened that constitute fraud. To suggest that the entire process is fraudulent would be going way too far. Fraud is a, an attempt to obtain a pecuniary advantage to some or occasion a pecuniary loss to others by deception. So fraud is a very serious crime, and if I were to allege it against everyone to do with climate science, this would be absurd. What is the case, though, is that there are one or two very specific examples where fraud has, in my opinion, been committed. And very slowly, step by step, we are closing in on the fraudsters, and eventually reports will go to the FBI in the United States, to the police in the United Kingdom, to the police in New Zealand, to the police in India, saying, here are a few specific people, I'm not going to name names on the programme, you wouldn't expect me to do that, who appear to us to have committed fraud for the sake of either profiting personally or doing down everybody else by over-promoting the climate scare in a way which involves specific, narrowly focused, very clear examples of deception. Now, this wouldn't have anything to do with West Anglia, would it? And the, East uh, Anglia. Uh, East Anglia, sorry, yes. Uh, no, what happened there was that, uh, uh, I would say, a whistleblower, depending on your point of view, you might say a, a hacker or thief, uh, released 
emails from uh, scientists in the climate field all over the world to each other, which had been, for some reason, uh, ended up being stored on the servers at the University of East Anglia. And these emails did reveal a series of wrongdoings, which the public authorities then did their very best to look the other way about. They were um, advising each other to destroy data in case the likes of us tried to ask for them so that we could check whether the science had been done right. Uh, there was clear evidence that they were tampering with the data. They were trying to conceal the fact that, for instance, the reconstructions of temperature using the widths of tree rings, which is what they've been using to try to find out what temperature changes happened in the last thousand years before we had thermometers to measure them. They were saying that in the 1960s, the tree ring data showed temperatures falling sharply when, in fact, the thermometers showed temperatures rising somewhat. And this huge discrepancy was concealed by a trick to hide the decline which the um, tree ring records were showing. Now that I is... The decline, decline was in fact their words in the email. That, that, that's right. And, and, and they were saying this is Michael Mann's nature trick, because he'd done this before apparently, to hide the fact that the tree ring data are not a skillful way of showing what happened before, because in the period where we have both the tree ring data and the temperatures from thermometers, the thermometers were showing temperatures going in one direction, and the tree rings showing it going completely the opposite direction, and they wanted to conceal that. Well, so there's more factors that go into the width of a tree ring, certainly, than temperature. There's water and CO2 levels. You're very well informed, exactly. If there's more rainfall, you get a wider tree ring. If there's warmer weather, you get a wider tree ring. If there's more CO2, CO2 fertilization, as it's called, you get a wider oh, tree ring. Can they tease those factors out at all? They pretend that they can, but in practice, they can't. <laughs> no, I don't think so. I <laughs> why think it's use very, it at all? Very challenging. Yeah. No, well, I guess the reason why they use it is because it's the best we can do. Hmm. So actually, it isn't a, the best. It's, a, it's an oh. interest. It's an interesting scientific thing to try. The question is, when do you take it too far? That's what we're really talking about here. Uh, as to the best we can do, I mean, what other evidence is there? The IPCC said you shouldn't use tree rings, particularly from the trees oh, that they no. were using. I was Ris referring to. Cone. I was referring to the whole business of proxy data and paleoclimate information in general. That's the best we can do, and usually, it's all of it is problematic. Yes, some tree sense. rings in particular. The IPCC said don't use those until. Michael Mann and his colleagues came along and largely using tree rings pretended there had been no medieval warm period warmer than the present and that therefore today's temperatures are warmest in 1300 years and it's all our fault and it's doom and gloom. That isn't true. There's an enormous amount of evidence from all over the world, archaeological, historical and scientific, uh, that establishes that the medieval warm period was real, uh, was global and was considerably warmer in some places than the present and at least as warm as the present. Now, what do you gentlemen uh, in, consider in to be the public opinion today about global warming? Because I see this pendulum swinging yeah. the other way. I think that you go first. Yeah. Well, I, I just want to bring up something which I, I think maybe the listeners might not be aware of is the whole, the, the email record that uh, we're talking about, which is the famous climate gate emails. Um, there is this dimension of the, the news the inability to transmit very important information. So the, the information that people have about the release of these emails has not been widely um, transmitted through the normal uh, channels. And 
the reason they give is that uh, this information was released unauthorized. Uh, it was not uh, uh, an authorized release of these emails, uh, while at the same time these same media channels are quite happy to make a big deal out of information coming out of WikiLeaks. That's not really a problem. But when it came out of ClimateGate, that mm -hmm. was used as a, a pretext not to release the information, which made it so that many people don't really know what's in there. And then they had a series of, of hearings about ClimateGate in which they didn't actually... Uh, speak to people who were referred to in the ClimateGate uh, emails and ask them what was correct and wasn't correct. They they really uh, whitewashed the, the whole thing. So there's a very strange inconsistency. There's a part of the world who thinks, yes, there, there was nothing to be seen there, and then there are people who have never heard of it. But uh, the reality is when you look at what was actually said and people who, a fair number of people do know, uh, people were stopping me in, in the street here in Western saying, well, Chris, you've been vindicated. It's really what you've been saying has been happening. And uh, there you have some real concrete evidence to that effect. I can support that because yeah. I was named in the emails. So I wrote to the head of one of the inquiries just after he'd been appointed saying, I want to give evidence on the matters about which they're, they're calling me names and about other matters that I've seen in these emails where I have some information that the uh, the inquiries could usefully use. I got no reply. I emailed again and got no reply. I waited a few weeks and emailed again and then got a reply from the assistant to the inquiry saying that the uh, evidence period was now closed and that they weren't willing to hear any testimony from me. So there's no way that these inquiries, any of them, were fairly conducted. The fact is the governing class worldwide and the scientific governing class worldwide got caught with its pants down when these emails came out and they did their damnedest to cover it all up. Now in your um, lecture series you're, you're, mm. you're trying to get at the fact that science is not a matter of consensus and it doesn't really matter what the public think out there, the truth is the truth, regardless. Are you still seeing though... Um, just out of political curiosity, because it's the politics and the public perception which drives the taxation and the funds and the government action. Mm. What do you think is the public perception out there of climate change now? Has it changed at all? It's changed enormously. The reason why is that people can sense there's something not quite right about all this. The rather hysterical tone in which the usual suspects have been saying it's all doom and Al Gore. Al Gore is merely one. He's largely discredited now. The, the court case in 2007 in the UK, which exposed nine serious errors in his movie, all of which pointed towards inventing oh, yes. a problem where there wasn't one and exaggerating it where there was. Lovely. And the judge said that had the <coughs> Department of Education not circulated 77 pages of corrective guidance to every school in England and Wales, he would not have allowed the film to be shown. So it was a big victory for the army of light and truth. Gore has been a busted flush ever since then uh, because he really doesn't know his stuff. Uh, I've seen a copy of his speaking contract. His standard fee is between $100,000 and $300,000 for each appearance. And it specifically says that he will not take unscripted questions. And people are beginning to realise that on the true-believing side, or the bedwetting side of the debate, as they call it, <laughs> um, they don't 
like to engage in debate. They don't like to take questions. They like to merely hand down, as though from on high, the tablets of Moses, saying, this is it and you, haven't, you can't argue, there's all a consensus. But, of course, Aristotle, 2,300 years ago, codified the commonest fallacies in human discourse, one of which was the, uh, what the medieval schoolmen would later call the argumentum ad populum, the head count fallacy. Just because you're told that lots of people say they believe a thing to be so, it doesn't mean that there are a lot of people, doesn't mean they do say what you're told they say. Even if they do say it, doesn't mean they believe it. Even if they believe it, doesn't mean they're right. Even if there were a consensus, the fact of that consensus tells you nothing about the truth or falsehood of what that consensus is about. And everyone who's had a classical education, as I had, would know that straight away. In any previous generation, the notion that there's a consensus would be regarded as intellectual baby talk. <laughs> well, even my mother, I just want to say, advice from my mother, and quite aside from Aristotle and everything else, when I was a child, she, I would say, to her, well, I have to do this because everybody, all the other kids are doing it, and she would say, well, you know, would, if everyone else was jumping off a cliff, would you two do that too? Oh, I yes, mean, that was yes. the... She already knew about Aristotle, my mother, you know? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I saw you speaking sort of to this on the Michael Corrin show, an yes. older one you appeared on. He asked you an interesting question. He said, why is it that it seems that the left and right are lined up on two opposite sides of this issue? And your response, if I recall, was something to the effect that, well, the, the British Conservative Party is sort of center-left, as you define them. And the implication from your answer was that the left does also... Um, deny global warming, but they're called conservatives. Is, is that was that the intention of that? Answer? Well, I mean, no, no. Or, the Conservative or, Party in Britain are true believers. They're bedwetters, just that's like what everybody I, else. Exactly. Uh, I mean, the backbenchers are not, but uh, everybody in the government. The official line is, oh, global warming's all terrible, and we have to save their planet. I mean, all all of it's baby talk. The fact is there's nothing wrong with the planet. It's been here for 4,567 million years with the climate changing all the way through. It's changing now. It'll go on changing. But uh, the effect of us on the planet is simply not significant. But to, to get onto this question of why has there been an apparent uh, left-right split, this is the traditional divide in politics which goes all the way back to early imperial China where the governing class tended to be what the Chinese called legalists. We would call them now totalitarians, interferers in every tiny aspect of people's lives. The governing class likes to govern. The more government it can do, the more it can save us from ourselves, prodigiously at our expense, of course, the more it likes it. So instinctually, you'll find that governments will tend to say, we don't very much care whether the global warming storyline is true. And the more honest ministers around the world that I've spoken to on this are quite open about it. They say, we don't care whether it's true. But it's just so good for us to pretend that it is true because we can extend our power and increase what the civil service in Britain called the tax base, which is the various ways of extracting ever more money yes. from the ordinary guy. And the ordinary guy has got the point. I mean, in the cab on the way to the airport coming out here to America, uh, the, the cabbie said, global warming, governor? He said, nah, just another way of getting taxes out of the working class, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and with that, yeah. I think that we've just entered into the realm of politics, so now's a good time to take a break, and when we come back, we will get into more politics with Professor Christopher Essex and Lord Monckton. We'll be back right after this. 
At the request of Mrs. Thatcher, the UK Met Office set up a climate modelling unit which provided the basis for a new international committee called the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC. They came out with the first big report which predicted climatic disaster as a result of global warming. I remember going to the scientific press conference and being amazed by two things. First, the simplicity and eloquence of the message and the vigor with which it was delivered. And secondly, the total disregard of all climate science up till that time, including, incidentally, the role of the sun, which had been the subject of a major meeting at the Royal Society just a few months earlier. problems of our age is that we are governed by people who care more about feelings than they do about thoughts and ideas. Now, thoughts and ideas, that interests me. Ask me what I'm thinking. What are you thinking, Margaret? Watch your thoughts for they become words. Watch your words for they become actions. Watch your actions for they become habits. Watch your habits, for they become your character. And watch your character, for it becomes your destiny. What we think, we become. My father always said that. And I think I am fine. Do you think that movie was a fine rendition of Margaret Thatcher, Lord Monkton, or because you knew her personally? Well, I had the pleasure of working for her for four years. I was a very junior cog in the machine. I was a policy wonk in her policy unit. There were, there were six of us. And none of us was uh, a scientist. None of us had a piece of paper to say that we had had the approved socialist training I in science. Uh, so, foot de mieux. I ended up giving quite a lot of the scientific advice. It would be wrong to describe me as the science advisor, though in practice I did give the science advice. Um, she was exactly, as uh, that clip describes, fascinated by ideas. Give you, give you an example. I went to say goodbye to her after my four years there, which is twice the usual stint in the policy unit, and I gave her a little silver puzzle. 12-piece puzzle I'd designed, uh, and she gave me a signed photograph. And I think probably the signed photograph was more valuable than the puzzle. But anyway, um, <laughs> then I said, you know, can I have one more fourpence worth? And uh, rather resignedly, she said, yes, dear. And so I then set forth an idea to her that I'd been working on. It was to do with sorting out the mess that the taxation and benefit systems had got into and they were fighting against each other and large numbers of people were being effectively paid by the government not to ever think about going anywhere near doing a job and this was unfair to them and very unfair to the taxpayer. And I said there are ways of reforming this which are quite unexpected and will go very much against everything that you thought and everything that you hold dear but I said there are reasons reasons why I think this is right. Now, she then uh, let me describe this. Uh, 
and immediately stiffened and said, that's a shirker's charter, dear, giving everyone money regardless of whether they work or they don't. I said, that's what you're doing now, but you're doing it in a complicated, expensive and futile way which imprisons people in poverty. Redo the way you hand out the money and you'll end up handing out less because you'll be encouraging people to go into work rather than bribing them not to. And I described it. I took the Thatchers. I said, Thatcher, uh, Dennis, Margaret, two children. Supposing you were on the dole, I said, and I offered you quite a large amount of money per week to come to work, and I specified the amount, which was a big amount for that time. Would you go to work? And she said, yes, dear. And I said, if you wanted to get the largest income for your family, you wouldn't. The state pays more than that. She said, really? I said, yes. Here are the figures, and I had back-engineered the DHSS tax benefit model so that I could take any family type and show exactly what would happen if you changed any of the ways of doing taxation and benefits and how it would affect that family, and, at the macro scale, how it would affect how much it would cost the government in net terms. She was riveted by this, and she said, I tell you what, dear, I want to hear more about this. And then she tiptoed <laughs> to the door and pushed it shut in the face of the Japanese ambassador who was due to have the next <laughs> meeting. He was told to come back another day. Once she shut the door, that was the signal to her private office that she had been captivated and was going to be there for some time. Then she said, I think we ought to have a little drink, dear, don't you? <laughs> and she tiptoed rather archly over to the bookcase, pulled out a tedious-looking tome, and behind it was a bottle of very nasty whiskey. I won't say what brand, it would be unfair to her. And, and two glasses. And uh, she was a great whiskey drinker. Dennis always drank gin. Normally it's the other way around, but that's how it was with them. So we had whiskey, and I was still there. That's telling, actually. An hour and a half later... And she was hearing something that went against her every instinct. But the moment I had shown I'd done the homework, that I knew the figures, and she could see I was right, she changed her view. The Iron Lady changed her view. And she always would, provided you could provide a scientific explanation where you'd done the sums, you'd sweated the numbers, and you could explain what the truth was. And, of course, this made it thrilling to work for her. She always told you what she thought once you gave her an idea, she would always then pause. And then you had two choices. Cut and run, in which case she would never listen to you again, or stand your ground and argue, politely of course, there was I, a young lad of 30, and there was she, the Prime Minister of Britain. You know, one could not be too informal in that relationship. But she was very, very good to those whom she knew to be loyal to her and to her ideals. And she was endlessly willing to listen to ideas. And I found that a very exciting time, and you could see why it was that Britain was so well-governed during those years, how the, the entire economic fortunes of the the country were transformed, she won the Falklands War, she transformed the image of Britain from a declining, collapsing country which was heading to be a third world banana monarchy without even bananas and soon with no monarchy <laughs> the way things were heading. She turned it once again into Great Britain. And yet now you no longer support the Conservative? Well, it's Government? not the Conservative Party anymore. No. No, it's now a sort of uh, watered-down socialist party. And the trouble with that is that they're not dealing 
with the hard issues. It's all about spin and PR. You know, David Cameron has never run so much a bath for himself in his life. The second <laughs> footman did that, and now he's trying to run the country. Are you the deputy leader of the UKIP? Uh, I was Party? under uh, Malcolm Pearson, the former leader. I'm now the head of policy. So a head of policy of the United Kingdom Independence Party. That's right, which um, is the second largest British party in elections to the European Parliament. Yes, they, they have members, don't they? they have Absolutely, yes, yes, we have a dozen. We've just got a new one, in fact, Roger Helmer, who was a Conservative member of the European Parliament. We've been um, talking of this for some years. He's now jumped ship and come and joined us as a, a, a <coughs> MEP. And this is increasingly <coughs> happening now. There's also a number of Conservative backbenchers in the House of Commons who, if David Cameron does not give the British people a referendum on whether we stay in or come out of the European dictatorship before the next election, then some of those, after the next election, will come across and join us. Speaking and we'll have our first representation in the Westminster Parliament in, in the Commons. Speaking of crossing the floor, so to speak, mm. um, a few weeks ago, maybe a month ago, I had the privilege of interviewing Paul Weston, a former UKIP member, now head of the, uh, or chairman of the uh, British Freedom Party. Mm. Your opinion of the British Freedom Party? I wish that the independent-minded people who are willing to stand away from the major parties could remember that because we are so few, we should stand together. And UKIP is, for all its faults, the biggest of the uh, freedom-loving, democracy-loving, independent-minded parties. And I don't like this splitting off, which is very prone to happen in those smaller parties, precisely because you have to be independent-minded to start with. And this makes everybody much more willing to fight and go their own way. Well, the British Freedom Party won't really come to anything very much, I don't think. And I would like them all to come back and join us. And we stand together, because gradually... Uh, the right of the Conservative Party is coming our way. 103 conser Conservative MPs um, defied their leader on the European question in the Commons the other day, as a result of which he then found himself constrained to do what he himself, as an absolute devotee of the dictatorship, um, to veto proposals to allow the dictatorship to take over our powers to set our own tax rates. Now, in the United States, uh, the, the Madison papers, the Federalist papers, showed that they were desperately concerned to make sure there should be no taxation without representation. David Cameron would have cheerfully signed away our right to have taxation and representation. Yes, there's an elected European Parliament. It can't even bring forward a bill. It's a talking shop that's there just to make it look as though the dictatorship is a democracy. It isn't. It is a dictatorship. It's run by a tiny handful of, the official German word for them, commissars. And the Conservative Party is too willing to allow our democracy to be handed over so that now, again, according to a, a German government estimate, five-sixths of all the laws made in the United Kingdom and other members of the European dictatorship are actually made not by us or by anyone we elect in our parliament, still less in the European Parliament, but by the unelected commissars who tell us how we shall now have to live. Whatever else that is, it isn't democracy, and we want to change that. Okay, we're at the bottom of the hour. That, uh, that's amazing stuff to hear. Uh, Going to switch our 
subject after this break because we understand you're a man of many interests, including games and puzzles, which you've evolved into a big business and um, something very interesting that I only found out about recently. So we will return after this break. In the spring of 1986, Margaret Thatcher received an urgent and secret request from the American president. Ronald Reagan asked her to let him use British air bases for an attack on the Libyan president, Colonel Gaddafi. The Prime Minister agreed. France and other European allies had refused. It had the effect of cementing the Anglo-American alliance. There's another point. What's the good of having bases if when you want to use them you're not allowed to by the home country? It made America realize that Britain was her real and true friend. Uh, when they were hard up against it and wanted something and that no one else in Europe was. There are weak lots, some of them in Europe, you know. Weak, feeble. Sorry to bother you, sir. It's no bother, Wesley. Please, sit down. Thanks. There's a, a game going around. It's something that Commander Riker brought back from Ryza. It's uh, a device that hooks around the ears. Hmm. Yes, I've seen it. I did some preliminary tests on the game, and what I found leads me to believe that it may have some harmful side effects. Specifically, sir, I think it's psychotropically addictive. Addictive? What have you discovered? The game initiates a serotonin cascade in the frontal lobe of the brain. Now, I know that's nothing conclusive, but it could explain why everyone is so attracted to it. And at the same time, it stimulates the brain's reasoning center. I don't know what that's all about. Hmm. I'll start an investigation immediately. Thank you, Mr. Garcia. Welcome back to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where you can give us a call at 519-661-3600 to join in on the conversation. You can also email us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, and you can go to our website to look up all of our past shows, going back to, um, well, 241 shows, I think, of today. That's right. Yeah, 241 shows today on uh, justrightmedia.org. And we're joined in studio, if you, in case you're joining in uh, right now, with uh, Professor Christopher Essex of the Mathematics Department here at the University uh, of Western applied Ontario. Applied Mathematics, please. Oh, excuse me. Yeah. <laughs> applied Mathematics. Mm -hmm. And um, Lord Christopher Monckton, um, also okay. a, a mathematician of sorts. Is that correct? Can Lord I Monckton? ask you yes. if, uh, to ask him <laughs> if his games produce serotonin cascades, as in the <laughs> Don't all games do that? I'm sure they do <laughs> excite the pleasure center somehow sure, or other. Right. <laughs> uh, maximum, Wolf, Mr. Wolf. <laughs> <laughs> so you do have um, quite a background um, of puzzle making, and you are known for the Eternity Puzzle, and you're also known for Sudoku X. Would That's you right. like to explain a couple of those? Let's start with Sudoku X. Sure. Uh, I was away in Cyprus when the craze for Sudoku broke in the Times and the Daily Mail in London. I came back six months after the craze had begun. 
And I thought, I want a piece of this. But, of course, by then, every newspaper had got its own Sudoku puzzle, so I thought, I'm going to do something different. So I played around with it on the computer and decided that the smart thing to do would be not only to have the rows and columns and boxes containing all the digits from 1 to 9, but also to have the two diagonals containing all the digits from 1 to 9. And so here's a little puzzle for your listeners. Uh, what percentage of all the boxes that could have the digits from 1 to 9 arranged in a Sudoku way could also have the diagonals containing all the digits from 1 to 9. Uh, Christopher Essex can do this in his head, but the rest <laughs> of you, it may take a little longer. I can't even understand um, the question. <laughs> um, all all you have to do is you give a number. That's, that's okay. Uh, yes. Uh, just guess. But anyway, th that was uh, an innovation. And I then managed to find that I could make puzzles from a 6 by 6 via a 9 by 9 to a 12 by 12, even a 16 by 16. Oh dear. And in the 16 by 16 puzzle, you had the 4 by 4 boxes, mm -hmm. you had 8 by 2 boxes, 2 by 8 boxes, you had the rows, the columns, and the diagonals. And the really tough versions of those, because I trained the computer to set them so that they were of different grades, the really tough ones could take up to a month to solve by hand. Exactly. They were very, very tough. So I had great fun doing that and produced five books of Sudoku puzzles, the first of which sold 100,000 copies, so it was a bestseller. Mm -hmm. um, and I enjoyed doing that. It was a nice intellectual exercise. And then the, the biggest, uh, I suppose, puzzle I've ever been involved in. Before you get in, on to yes, that, yes. Lord Moncton, is, is a question I have, and that is that I do a Sudoku puzzle about every day. Mm. I've never, unfortunately, tried your Sudoku X, though I have Shame. seen it on the internet. <laughs> Obviously not done by you, though. I mean, mm. there's other people out there doing Sudoku X. Yeah. Um, they are now. They're all copying. Yes, they're yes. all copying you, but yes. it would seem to me... I don't me, even get royalties when they do. It's don't a, you? It's a cheers, really. It's yep. terrible. But um, it would seem to me, and I have never done it, that having that extra constraint would actually give you more clues to be able to solve the puzzle quicker. Exactly. Therefore, you could reduce the number of digits that are given to you when oh, you start. So you only start off with, what, and 16? No so you, yes, you can go right down even to a dozen and still solve the whole Is puzzle. Right? It makes it a very, very much more interesting puzzle, actually. Very good. Yes. Now your eternity process. How, how, many, how many books did you publish? Of Five books. books. Yeah. yeah. Okay. With all diff we started out with very simple ones and then they got bigger and bigger and then we were doing these 16 by 16s. And, uh, people liked these. They found them very, very challenging. And the Daily Mail runs a Sudoku X um, every day, the 6 by 6 one. Let's hope you get royalties which for is, that. Uh, I did to start <laughs> with and they paid me very handsomely to, to, to set them. And then the puzzle editor wanted to make some money out of this himself. So he said, we're going to cut your pay in half. And I said, no, you've agreed the fee, and that's what we do. And so I stopped doing them. And he just carried on doing them himself, um, which was a little naughty. And I am going to have lunch with the editor when I get back to the UK and say, well, you mm -hmm. now owe me about £150,000 worth of royalties. Can I have a cheque, please? <laughs> <laughs> or at least he pick up the time no. for lunch. <laughs> <laughs> but... Um, you have to accept that if you invent something that's interesting, people will copy it and take advantage, and life is like that. It's tough. You just have to go off and invent something else. Talking of which, let's turn to the eternity puzzle. Yes. And this was an idea I came up with because I had designed a little, uh, what they're called, they're called tessellation puzzles, a particular kind of mathematical jigsaw, and I'd given one to Margaret Thatcher when I um, left her service, just 12 pieces made out of silver based on triangles um, joined together. And about two years later, her private office got in touch, and they said, 
you've got to help. The entire business of government has come to a standstill <laughs> because Margaret has been trying to solve your puzzle and neither she nor Dennis can do it. And if we're ever going to get the government back on track, please, 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 will you send us the answers? So I, I sent them the answers, of which there were several hundred, in fact, solutions. And, uh, uh, so fortunately the government got back on track. But I realised that... This allowed the possibility that if you had slightly more complicated pieces, you could have a puzzle of, say, 200 pieces, which would be so difficult to do that you can offer an enormous prize and it would take so long before anyone won it that you would have sold shedloads of puzzles in the meantime and got filthy rich. You're quite a capitalist. Uh, I'm afraid so. Filthy capitalist, that's me. <laughs> uh, unashamed capitalist. So uh, I therefore designed one. I was very ill in bed at the time and I wanted to leave something for my lovely wife, Juliet, uh, to get some revenue from in case I pegged out, which I very nearly did. But then I got better and I had a terrible time trying to convince the prize indemnity insurers on the London market that they should provide cover for the prize in case somebody won, won it too soon and we hadn't sold enough puzzles to get the revenue mm. in to meet the prize. So I went down to London and saw the uh, contingency insurance brokers and I said, here is a beautiful Italian uh, walnut mock-up of a 209-piece puzzle in the shape of a dodecagon, a 12-sided figure, um, and this I want you to insure for a million sterling, say 1.6 million Canadian dollars, that sort of thing. And uh, they said, do you see that rectangular object behind you? close it on your way out. <laughs> I said, look, I'm a sick man. I've come all the way down from Scotland. I have an appointment to see you. I want my 20 minutes worth. And I tell you what, I've got a 12-piece puzzle here, this time based on squares rather than triangles. I'm going to give this 12-piece puzzle, which I tipped out on the table, to your assistant. And if he can do that puzzle in 20 minutes, just a 12-piece puzzle, then okay, maybe it isn't as hard as I say it is if we go up to 209 pieces. But if he can't do it in 20 minutes, I want you simply to send the big eternity puzzle to your loss adjusters. Get them to go to any mathematician they like and let that mathematician tell them how hard it's going to be to solve this puzzle. Then you come back to me and tell me whether your lead insurance uh, underwriter for contingency, a wonderful man called Danny Burns, a great, great character, famous throughout the industry, <coughs> one, one of the great men in insurance, uh, is willing to take this one on. So uh, they, I, I gave my 20-minute spiel at the end of which there was his poor assistant desperately trying to get these uh, pieces of the 12-piece puzzle together. He couldn't do it. But, of course, they weren't born yesterday in Lloyd's, and so the broker said, oh, yes, but, of course, what you've given us is a puzzle that can't be solved at all, and that's why he can't do it. I said, give me the frame, give me the pieces, and I, in, in a few seconds I assembled them and said, there you are. But the clincher was that there were 2,339 distinct ways of arranging those 12 pieces in that frame, and he hadn't found even one of them in 20 minutes. And I said, that's why it's difficult. And every piece you add multiplies the difficulty by about three. So the time you got up to 200 pieces, it's really going to be hard. So they, uh, they then said, he said, actually, that is interesting. He said, are you really willing that this could go to absolutely any mathematician in the world to be checked? I said, yes, of course. They'll all tell you. So that's what they did. I don't know which mathematician they went to. 
but they came back fully satisfied. So they provided the cover, then I found a manufacturer, and the rest is history. You know, it's an, it's an incredibly creative thing that you did there. Um, I can't imagine... Do you have a visual sense of these puzzles, putting them together in your mind, or is it because of your mathematical abilities that you calculated something in advance before you approached it? How does one approach that creativity? Chris was just saying that we made mathematics seem so black and white and fascist with some <laughs> of our clips, right? Because it is black and white. Something's right or wrong with math. Uh, it's not so no, 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 it never no, no, is. No, no, That's no, no, my no. point. Uh, That's you exactly. Must, uh, you must not forget uh, Descartes and Pascal and Bernoulli, uh, probability theory, uh, which is dealing with where you can't get a definite answer. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of maths uh, deals with uncertainties these days, including the climate. But how do you come up yeah. with, a, with a puzzle? Well, first of all, you do have to be a bit of a math nut. I've always enjoyed trying to solve puzzles, trying to create puzzles. And, of course, the hard part... That's the first requirement for being a mathematician. uh, Yes, you have to be a a problem solver. I mean, uh, in politics, it's very useful to be a mathematician, or at least to have tried to to wrestle with mathematics. I mean, I'm uh, pretty much self-taught, and I don't claim to be at all an expert. And then the math becomes a tool in the art. It becomes, absolutely, it's a weapon, because Mm -hmm. so few people know any mathematics that if you know just a little, then in the blind world, the one-eyed man is is king. And, indeed, this is Mm -hmm. what uh, Paddy Neeran, uh, in whose name I'm giving the lecture today. He was a professor of applied mathematics um, at, uh, in fact, one of your predecessors. Western. Uh, at Western. Um, he had uh, a mission, a kind of zealous mission. He wanted people to understand mathematics. He wanted it to be widely available. He didn't want it to be misused for political purposes either. He wouldn't have liked all this climate stuff. But how do you create a puzzle like that? Well, you start by wanting to solve puzzles yourselves. And here, just for fun, just for the listeners and for you here in the studio, here is a a puzzle. A cylindrical hole, exactly one metre long, is drilled right through the centre of a sphere. So it goes in one side and comes out the other. What is the volume remaining in the sphere? I'm going to give you a clue. You can solve this puzzle without resorting to spherical trigonometry and mathematical calculation. You can do it by logic, based on the information I have given you, and rather startlingly, on the information I haven't given you. So let yourselves think on that. A cylindrical hole, exactly one metre long, is drilled right through the centre of a sphere. What is the volume remaining in the sphere? Now, when I saw this puzzle, it's quite an old one, Mm -hmm. I solved it at once. By logic. I can picture it, but I'm not sure even how I would answer it in what terms. That's the thing. I solved it at once by logic. I didn't have enough mathematics in those days to check whether I was right by mathematics. But in fact, I was. And so the art in mathematics is to find the shortest way to the solution of a problem that may seem, at first blush, terribly complex. Now, sometimes there's there's a kind of irreducible simplicity below which you can't go, but you try to simplify things as best you can. And sometimes, particularly in, in policy matters, just getting a rough idea of what the answer is is enough. Give you a, a, an example from uh, uh, Margaret Thatcher. She said to, to us in the policy unit one day, she said, look, I need to know whether Britain should join the exchange rate mechanism of the European Union. 
and this was the precursor to the now collapsed euro. And she said, I want to join if we can, because it will please my finance minister. And if we can do this in such a way, it doesn't actually harm Britain. We don't need it to do any good to Britain, as long as it doesn't do any harm. I'll happily go along with it just for the sake of keeping my finance minister happy. So could you please look at it and tell me, can we do this? And we looked at it every which way, and we concluded it couldn't be done for one very, very simple reason that the British currency was inflating at 11% at that time. All the currencies we were going to tie its exchange rate to irrevocably were inflating at only 4%. And so at whatever rate of exchange we had locked ourselves in, because that was what this mechanism entailed, so that we fixed our exchange rate against the other currencies and effectively it became a single currency area which you could eventually replace the pound and everything else with the euro. Um, we would be unable to retain that rate for any length of time because in reality we were losing 7% a year in value against the other currencies because we were inflating 7% faster than they were. And so we said to Margaret Thatcher, don't do this, it can't work because 11 minus 4 doesn't equal zero. And the extraordinary thing is that sometimes policy decisions come down to a really simple equation like that. <laughs> and so she, in the end, was forced into it by John Major and Douglas Hurd, two members of her cabinet, in her last month in office when they knew she was on the way out. And they said, you've got to do this, because they didn't want to take the blame for it once John Major took over. Um, but she did take us in, very much against her will, very much against our advice. And, of course, then it failed just as spectacularly as we had said it would. We had said, because of this inflation differential, in the long run, the exchange rate of a currency against another currency is absolutely determined by the inflation differential between them. And, therefore, this is not going to work. The, the value of the pound will eventually have to fall Trying to keep it up with ever higher artificial interest rates will destroy the British economy and may also destroy the mechanism. And in the end, indeed, it was both. We destroyed the European system and the British system. Looks like uh, every country needs a puzzle maker in their policy councils. <laughs> you need somebody who can understand that 11 minus 4 does not <laughs> equal 0. And the thing is, you cannot, just because you're the government, repeal the laws of arithmetic. But John Major thought you could. And it destroyed his political career because he wouldn't listen to those of us who had done that very simple sum on the back of an envelope. All right. We're coming down to our last few minutes. And then after our last break here, we'll wrap up with some final comments. Einstein didn't learn how to talk until he was six years old. So I'm not sure if baby Einstein is the best name. <laughs> for a video that's supposed to make your kids smarter. <laughs> Adult Einstein was a genius. Baby Einstein was an idiot. You get to pick. Um, the math teacher was so popular, they gave him Descartes Blanche. For $300, in the coordinate system named for Rene Descartes, what are the values of X and Y at the origin? Benjamin? Zero. Zero. Yeah. My hero, zero. Our new category. 
We are in studio with Professor Christopher Essex and Lord Moncton, who are both mathematicians of sorts and are going to be talking about <laughs> of sorts. Well, I'm a mathematician of sorts. He's a real one. He's a real one. An applied mathematician. Uh, applied, uh, No, yes. I, I'm an impure mathematician. Now, <laughs> now this, this event coming up, the, the courtier's conundrum, it is a conundrum. Could you describe it for us? Certainly. The problem is that the busy statesman is so busy that he or she doesn't have time to listen to more than a small kitchen cabinet of trusted advisers. There will only be typically half a dozen of them whom she can really trust. And that means that because government pokes its nose into so many different specialist fields these days, nowadays including even the weather, most of the time the advisers from whom she wants advice will be having to give advice in areas where they have absolutely no qualifications to do so. Now you may say why doesn't the Prime Minister go just listen to the experts? Well of course all Prime Ministers and Presidents will do that. They'll always hear what the experts have to say. But after all if you simply deferred to the experts without ever checking then you don't need politicians at all. Let the men in white coats govern the asylum. Precisely. Instead yeah. of the politicians. So there has to be some way of, of second-guessing the experts. And that's what the advisor has to do, even though he himself won't be, most of the time, an expert in the field that he's looking at. And so the courtier's conundrum is this. How can the inexpert advisor advise expertly? And, of course, each of us had to find our own ways of doing this. And I gave advice in a whole range of peculiar areas, from the hydrodynamics of warship hull forms to the epidemiology of retroviruses to the seafology of working out who would win which seat at a general election. All of these peculiar things, that, uh, including climate change. And at that time, I was saying to the Prime Minister, look, uh, be a little careful. Uh, the scientists are worried about this. We need to acquire the expertise to find out whether there really is the problem they say there is. But, you know, it looks like a problem from here at this stage. It sounds almost like a science of dealing with science. It is. In, that's very nicely put. And how, do, how does the inexpert advisor cope? You actually it. have to be and a polymath. <laughs> uh, yes, you do. A polymathematician, if you like. You, you have to be, which is not a parrot who's good at sums, but you have to be able to... Uh, find... I wouldn't take advice from Stephen Fry when it comes to necessarily politics, because he's uh, been described as a polymath as well. Uh, yes, no, he's, he's a lefty, which means yes. he's automatically disqualified from giving sound <laughs> advice. But no, the, the point is that uh, what one has to do is to find a way into a problem and then come up with a sensible answer. When the HIV problem came along, I was the first person in the policy unit to realise that this was potentially very serious. So I set up a computer model using Cayley matrices and simply, simple matrix addition, which is the easiest of all the processes of matrices, so as to try to model for the first time how these peculiar retroviruses, which lingered in the body in the way that previously hadn't been believed possible, uh, would spread. And uh, you could tune 30 or 40 parameters in this simple model uh, so as to find out roughly what the rate of reproduction would be, how far it would spread into the population. 
And nobody else had done this at that time. And I did this and realised that unless sensible control measures were taken, tens of millions of people worldwide were going to get killed by this. And at that time, the official advice was it was all going to be all right, really. And actually, it was quite clear to me that it wasn't and that we were in for a, a very hard time unless the initial few people who were infected did not spread it on to anybody else. And the normal health measures that would be taken in these circumstances would be to make sure that in some way or another you would isolate those who'd got it from those who hadn't. And with HIV, it doesn't transmit very easily. The isolation doesn't mean you've got to lock them up somewhere. The first thing is just tell them they've got it. Test everyone, tell them they've got it, and just ask them, please don't spread it. Take the various mm, precautions sure. that prevent it spreading. That would probably have been enough if they'd done it early enough. But once again, the left captured this issue, and they said it would be discriminatory even to tell people they've got the virus. Result, 33 million dead since then. Of course, now, if it was malaria... Infected and going to die. If it was some other virus, not mm. sexually transmitted primarily yeah. by homosexual behaviour, they would have uh, perhaps not even touched that. They would well, have let you go ahead and do so. Well, yeah, malaria want, is a good want, point because the left got hold of that one too and I, they had I, DDT banned. One and a quarter million children died last year I, because I want, DDT is still not being used even though the World yeah. Health Organization has recommended it should be used. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I just, I just want to say that... There was, there's a lot more to this about the issue of mathematical modeling, the formal mathematics of analyzing HIV. It came in very late, and some, I think a lot of people died unnecessarily because they didn't understand the mathematics of what was going on for maybe 10 years or so. And uh, the multi-drug treatments, which finally got it under control, really came from detailed mathematical analysis, and if people had have understood it earlier, uh, a lot of people would have lived. That's sure. a shame. Yes, it is. But it's the importance of mathematics. It's not just um, some kind of superficial thing. So There's your applied there mathematics. You yes. Absolutely. And as Margaret Thatcher used to say, you have to get the big ones right. Dear. <laughs> there will be consequences if you don't. Yes, indeed. Gentlemen, our hour is up, believe it or not. Christopher Monkton and Christopher Essex, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank Thanks you for It's been a pleasure, us. and we've got to go for another week. Join us again next week when we continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see ya. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be awesome. I was at this bar and this crazy girl was hitting on me. And I was not into it. Um, she wanted my number. Uh, my friend said I should just give her a made-up number. So I told her it was 60 gajillion. <laughs> <laughs>